Dear Father, uh, we are thankful, Lord, that you brought us Toby and brought us others in ministry here to serve the body that you have assembled. Uh, isn't it amazing, Father, to see you at work, just to see something start out of nothing? An organization, a gathering, a group, who all of a sudden, by your spirit, by your direction, come together, uh, become one, made so by the spirit, and called together, Father, to worship in spirit and truth, to be your hands and feet. It's a it's happened countless times in the past. It continues to happen all around us, Father. You work uh, in so many places, in so many ways, we can't keep track. Uh, but, Father, nevertheless, you delight to begin again over and over with new groups. And we thank you, Father, that you gave us the opportunity to start. You're bringing us help in many ways so that we might meet the needs of those you've put before us. But, Father, I'm mindful of what Jesus told to Peter. When he encouraged Peter to, to step back into ministry and to serve him, he said, Feed my sheep, and that that would be the test if he loved Jesus. And that's our call, Father. We, we are a, a body who comes together to serve in ministry in many ways, but more, none more than just teaching your Bible, Father, teaching the Word. For, Father, if I love the people who are before me, the evidence of that will be that I teach them the Bible. In season and out of season. I will do it, Father, not because um, people necessarily want it, not in all cases, but we do it, Father, because there is nothing better we can give them. Nothing. There's no human philosophy, no human words, no human thought. There is no message. There is no uh, story that can equate to the power of teaching your word. And so, Father, we come before you tonight seeking to please you by feeding your sheep through the word of God. In the end, Father, it is you feeding. In the end, Father, it is your truth. We merely wish to be faithful servants as we present it honestly according to your will. Now give us all ears to hear, Father, and hearts to obey. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. Open your Bible. Let's go to chapter 5. We're at the end. We're actually transitioning out of this part, this first part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We move into chapter 6, and as we do, we move into part 2. But before we do that, we have one more of Jesus' examples from the Mishnah to study. Remember, Jesus is giving us six examples in chapter 5 from the Mishnah, from the oral law that the Pharisees put together. And he's using these examples to expose their distorted teaching on the kingdom and on righteousness. And as I've mentioned now many times, the Pharisees made all these rules in this book called the Mishnah and gave it to Israel because they said it would help Israel keep the commandments of God. And they assembled them all in this book, provided it as instruction. But in time, that book, the Mishnah, became more important to the Jewish people than Scripture itself when it came to regulating their daily lives. And in reality, what those rules did was not make it easier to keep the Word of God. What it actually did in most cases was contradict the Word of God. So what Jesus is doing in chapter 5, and again later in chapter 6, is working to set the record straight on what the people of Israel should be thinking when it comes to things in their Bible versus things in the Mishnah. He starts by saying the kingdom uh, saint doesn't look like a Pharisee after all. The saint isn't going to be the kind of person who follows the Pharisees' rules. Instead, they're going to follow the spirit of what God said in his word. And each of the examples we've studied so far illustrates that from one side or another. They all show just how demanding... God's standard is in His Word, and how the Mishnah falls short of getting us to that standard. Now today we're we're at the end of these examples, the last one, the sixth one. 
This one concerns the Mishnah's teaching on love, on how we show love to one another. And it's a bridge in a way. It bridges us into what Jesus tells us in chapter 6. But it does one other thing we need to understand. It also explains God's purpose in commanding his disciples to live righteously now, even as we await the kingdom to come. So that's a little preface of where we're going. You'll see it yourselves as we study. Let's pick up today, chapter 5, verse 43. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So looking at this last example, it starts in the same way that the other five have started. Right? He says, you have heard. And then he says, what you've heard is, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, once again, he prefaces with that phrase, you have heard, because he wants you to know he's not quoting from Scripture. He's quoting from the Mishnah, which was called the oral law. So when he says you've heard it, he's referring to the oral law. But this example, maybe more than the others, clearly shows that he's quoting from the Mishnah, not just because of that preparatory phrase, but because of what the quote itself said. Did you see that? Notice the quote starts by saying, love your neighbor. Then it ends with, Hate your enemy. Have you ever read that in Scripture? No, not in the sense of how they're quoting. And in verse 43, the first part, love your neighbor, comes from Leviticus, Leviticus 19.18. But that second part, to hate your enemy, is not found in Scripture. So that tells us he's not quoting Scripture. He's quoting something the rabbis wrote. That's confirmation. This is a Mishnah quote. And in the Mishnah, what the Pharisees did was they modified the Bible's teaching of loving your neighbor so that the spirit of that law was actually lost. And in its place, they created rules, and this is always so funny when I think about this, for how and when a Jew was to love and when love wasn't required. So they defined out all the circumstances in which, oh, you should love them, but you don't have to love them. Love them, but don't love them. And here's how they did it. First, the Pharisees decided that when God said, love your neighbor, the neighbor comment only applies to other Jews. So a neighbor had to be another Jew. Now, if you were to actually look at the context of Leviticus 19.18, in that particular quote, it does specify fellow Jews. But as Jesus explains, the spirit of the law was not limited in that respect. God expected Israel to show love to all humanity, not simply to their other fellow Jews. But the Pharisees had said, no, you're only required by law to show love to other Jews. And then secondly, the Pharisees concluded that since God only expected Jews to love fellow Jews, well then, by definition, it was permissible for you to hate Gentiles. So from that analysis, what the Pharisees taught was, love your neighbor, that is fellow Jews, hate your enemy, which was anyone else, which is how Jesus quoted the Mishnah. They would support that hate part, by the way, by verses like Psalms 139. Psalm 139, 21 says this. He says, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? That's David speaking. Now, the Pharisees said, well, look, if David can rightly hate those that God hates, well, then surely it's an appropriate thing for Jews to hate their enemies also. But David was referring to his shared hatred for unrighteousness, for ungodliness. Just as God hates unrighteousness, so does David hate it too. That's what he was saying, right? But we say it this way. We hate the sin 
And then what? We love the sinner, so to speak, right? So God told Israel to love others so that they might then bring those people into the knowledge of righteousness, into the knowledge of God. They were to be a light among the nations. That was their call. So the spirit of what God's law was saying to Israel was love your neighbors in a general sense. And what David was saying in the Psalms was, like you detest unrighteousness, so do I, God, which is what every believer should be able to say as well. But that's not what the Pharisees saw. Why? Because they're spiritually blind. Anyone who's an unbeliever is by definition spiritually blind. And that's their state of heart. So they never understood the meaning of these things. Instead, they were slaves to their own rules and to their own flesh. And that slavery led them further and further from the truth. And their rules just followed suit. So instead of looking for greater ways to show love, which was the intent of the law, later generations of Pharisees just kept expanding in the Mishnah on ways that Jews could legitimately hate other people. You see how that goes, right? Here's an example. By Jesus' day, by the time you reach this time in history, the Pharisees had defined the other Jewish political parties, like the Zealots and the Publicans and the Sadducees, as enemies, and therefore you could legitimately hate them. But you should love the Pharisees. That would be like Republicans defining Democrats as enemies. You have to hate them and vice versa. It's what they were doing. That's how far they had gone. So it didn't matter anymore that those people were also Jewish. Oh, but because they weren't Pharisee, you could hate them. So as a result of the Mishnah's teaching, godliness now includes the right to hate another Jew if they happen to be part of the Sadducee party. All right, so you've seen this pattern before. We've looked at this every time in these examples. That is, instead of seeking to understand what God's word actually wanted, what the spirit of it was, they just preferred this mindless exercise in dissecting it until it was a peace-parted little set of rules that had no relationship to what God actually wanted for us in the first place. And as a result, their flesh gets involved and the rules go in a certain direction so that at the end of the day, the rules actually had the effect of circumventing God's law rather than reinforcing God's law. It was just an excuse to let evil hearts do what they wanted. Evil, hypocritical hearts were always, are always seeking to disobey God while maintaining the illusion of righteousness. That is the definition of hypocrisy. You know, we want to look good, but we don't actually want to do good. So now, how does true righteousness view the issue of loving others? If you truly want to do what God's intent in His law is, how would that look? Well, Jesus says it's pretty simple. Righteousness means showing love to everyone, especially those who oppose you, especially your enemy. That's a direct contradiction of what the Pharisees had told everyone. And Jesus gives us God's definition of what a neighbor is. God's definition of a neighbor is your enemy, he says. That is, the neighbor is the one who persecutes you. So here's another way to understand what Jesus is saying about a neighbor. In the Jewish mindset, in the Pharisaical mindset, a neighbor was someone like you. In Jesus' way of saying it, in God's way of saying it, a neighbor is simply someone who is near you. It's by proximity. That's the only requirement to being someone's neighbor. So the one you work with is your neighbor. The one you see in the market is your neighbor. The person who lives next to you, we call them a neighbor. They're your neighbor. The one you have contact with in a moment on the side of the road. He's your neighbor. Whether you know him or not, whether they're a stranger or not, whether they're nice to you or not, the definition biblically of a neighbor is someone you can interact with, period. I mean, that's a pretty broad definition, isn't it? Now I don't get to pick and choose. 
I don't get to decide who I like as my neighbor so that I can determine whether I want to show them love or not. In Leviticus 19.18, the Lord defined a neighbor as a fellow Jew, but he didn't do that to limit their desire to love. He did it because in that day and age, in the time the law came to Israel, they principally lived, worked, and interacted with other Jews, by and large. So obviously, to a Jew, every other Jew is a neighbor. But the nation as a whole also had opportunity to interact with their Gentile nations around them, and God expected Israel to show accommodation to them up to a point, obviously. So loving a neighbor means, on occasion, loving someone who hates you, if that person happens to be within proximity. So remember, the definition of a neighbor is is based on proximity, not affinity. Think about this. How is someone going to persecute you except that they would come within your proximity? And that's where you start to love them. As they come against you, those who come against you to persecute you have made themselves a target of your love. That's the spirit of what God's asking for here. And Jesus clarifies, secondly, if that's what a neighbor means, then what does love mean in this context? He says, loving your neighbor isn't merely the absence of malice. The absence of malice, it means a proactive demonstration of concern and care for their well-being, and particularly for their spiritual well-being. He says, specifically, loving an enemy means taking time enough to pray for them. To pray for them. I don't think there's another human behavior, human action that you can take that is of greater loving concern for someone than to pray for them. I mean, you minister to their physical body, you can feed them and do all the rest. But when you think about their spiritual well-being, the part of them that is eternal, I don't think there's anything we have available to us that's of greater impact to someone's life, their, their future, than to pray for them. And that's what you're to do for your enemy. Remember, praying for someone means lifting them up before God, seeking that God would bring favor upon them in some way. Now, this is the person who hates you. This is the person who persecutes you. This is the person who, let's be honest, you don't really like either. Usually, right? You really, usually you have the same feeling in response. So I want you to imagine a person right now. Don't say it out loud, please, especially if they're sitting next to you. Imagine a person who you sincerely dislike for whatever reason. Someone you know has hurt you, let's say, or someone who treats you unfairly or unkindly. Now, I want you to imagine spending time on your knees, sincerely asking the Lord to bless them. Not merely asking the Lord to take care of them for you, but to actually bless them, to grant them peace and health, prosperity, some other blessing, most of all salvation by faith in Jesus, if that's not already in their heart. Now, as you think about that, let me show you how challenging that is, because it's not just that you don't have good feelings for them. You can overcome that probably in a moment. But think of it this way. When you sit down now or or go into your closet or sit in your bedroom or wherever you go to pray, you probably have the natural things on your mind. You pray for those you love. You pray for your family first, your friends, your, your church members, people that are close to you that you care about, right? Jesus says, righteousness, though, requires that you put enemies on the same level of importance in that moment as those you love. Not like you stick them on at the end just in case you have a little extra time. They're in the list from the beginning. In fact, he's asking us, I would argue, to devote as much time for praying for them as as those you might prefer. And I doubt we've done this. I say that not because I don't feel that this is a nice crowd or you know, because I don't think you're up to it. I'm telling you it because I know how human nature goes. Most of us probably don't pray much to begin with. 
No show of hands, but I'm just assuming in our busy way of life we have. Most of us probably, if pressed, would admit we don't pray enough. So let's take on the assumption here that the precious time you do spend in prayer, however that might be, however much or little that might be, when you finally do it, when you finally get the time and keep the appointment and actually do it, my guess is at that moment you're pretty much devoting that precious moment to the people you care most about or to your most pressing needs. That's just human nature, right? So I'm knowing that about most people, I suspect you never have time to pray for your enemy. You don't even think about it. And it's not necessarily because you don't have a heart for it. It's more because we give little time to it in general. But what Christ is saying is that the intent of love your neighbor starts with those who are not lovable. And where do you go for your standard? Where do you go for your example in that regard? Where is our best example of someone being loved before they were lovable? Isn't it you with Christ? Isn't it his willingness to die on a cross before you even knew him? Jesus says what God really meant when he says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. What he's saying is show regard for everyone that God has placed around you. And this is where the proximity piece, I think, becomes so crucial. If you understand God's sovereignty, then you understand there is no one that crosses your path who is not on that path for a reason God ordained. It's not an accident. There's no coincidences. There's only God incidences. So when you meet someone and that person hates you and you feel the same about them, that's not a coincidence. They're in your life for a reason. Now the question is, what are you going to do with that? The proximity issue now becomes the central unifying force in your life to understand where to direct your prayer life. Yes, you can include friends and family that aren't around you. That's natural. But what I'm saying is the people who are around you, including those you don't like too well, have been put around you because you are the blessing to them. Or so it may be that God has planned. Now the question is, are we thinking like that? Because you know what happens if you don't think about it. Those moments come and they go. And nothing happens. Not from our side anyway. That next door neighbor or that coworker that you contend with, for example... That next-door neighbor who annoys you, that worker who's undermined you, that relative who never liked you, that classmate who mocks you when you walk into the room. God has put those so-called enemies in your path. And one of the reasons I want you to consider, Jesus mentions this next, one of the reasons why these people are in your path is because it is a test that God has placed in your life for opportunity. And the test is this. The test, Jesus says, is whether you will be sons of your Father in heaven, he says. Now, in Jewish thinking, a son of a father would mean to follow, not only in the sense of the progeny of being descended from the man, but also in the sense of representing him in your life, uh, to be like him. So when Jesus says, I, uh, you, you know, be a son of Abraham, what he's saying is, be like Abraham. Remember when the Pharisees challenged him on this point, and in John's Gospel, John eight thirty nine. When Jesus said they should be like Abraham, they answered and they said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, well, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. That's the Jewish mindset. To be the son of a father meant to not only be descended from him, but to live like him. So our test is whether we are sons of our father in heaven, which is to say, do we look like him? Do we act like him? Do we think like him? And to make opportunity available for us, To be tested, what does God do? He puts someone in front of us that might tempt us not to be very godlike. You know, get on our wrong side. It's a test. Let's see how you handle this, Steve. You know, the best test for me is if I go to the DMV. 
If I stand in line at the DMV, that's a test of patience, among other things. And the Father brought Jesus to earth to model this for us. Because in coming to earth as a man, do you know that Jesus became our neighbor, effectively? Hebrews says it this way, in Hebrews 2.9, he says, We do not see him, Jesus, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor. He's saying, we don't see him right now, because though he came as a man, he died and he's gone for now. But, the writer goes on, It was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. The point being that he came to be like us so that he could make a path available for the Father to sanctify us in his image. But in that way, coming like us, living around us, he became our neighbor. And in that sense, he paved the path for us. He blazed the trail. He said, I'm going to love my neighbor's though they are my enemies, and he did that to bring us to glory. Now we, walking in his footsteps, sons of his father, we are now to do the same thing, the Bible says, to love neighbors who hate us. And so the test is, are you going to be like that or not? Are you going to be a son of the father or not in the way that God gives us opportunity? And not just to those who are being saved. You know, if you're the Christian who likes to like other Christians, well, that's, that's a good, good thing to do. It's a starting point, but it doesn't pass any test. The test is, are you going to love those who don't love you in return? In verse 45, Jesus says, God's goodness to everyone, both friend and foe, can be seen simply in the fact that he lets the sun rise on everyone and he gives everyone rain. That is to say that he is allowing people to live who don't deserve to live. He's allowing unbelievers to live another day. That's what the Father does. So if you want to be sons of your Father... You show grace, you show mercy, you show kindness to people who would otherwise not deserve it from you. But that's the way you reflect the Father. So let me ask you a question. How long have you lived, or did you live, on this earth before you came to know Christ? In my case, it was almost 30 years. All right? How many of those years was I a sinner? At least a few. All right, all of them. So how many years did I offend God? I mean, offend him by my sin. How, how many years was I a detestable person on earth as far as God's sight would go? In, in light of my behavior, right? He gave me food. He gave me shelter. He gave me clothing. I had a measure of joy in my life. I had some satisfaction in my life. I'm not saying it was a fulfilled life outside of Christ. I'm just saying I could go from day to day and it wasn't all that bad. I took all that for granted. Right? I mean, you're 20-something years old. You think life goes on forever. You don't think anything more than that. I assumed I had every right to expect a good life, right? I was earning it. I was working, whatever. In reality, what was I experiencing? I was experiencing the kindness of God, even though I was unkind and ungrateful. That's what I was experiencing. And you were doing exactly the same thing. I don't care when you came to faith. Just put that line in the sand. Everything before that... You were getting God's grace undeserved. Well, the whole thing is undeserved, but you were getting life undeserved. You lived a day longer than you should have every day you lived. But he did that because he was showing love to his enemy. And of course, he had a plan for you that brought you to faith at a point in time. It was all something he was working on. doesn't change the fact of it, though. If we are to be sons of our father, sons and daughters of our father in heaven... We are to show love to neighbors, whether friend or foe, because that's how the Father operates, so that's how we should operate. And 
Since this command is in a test sense, it's a test of us, the question becomes, well, what's in it if I pass the test? Isn't that a fair question, right? What what, what am I going to gain from this test if I show love to my neighbors? Look what Jesus says. He says there's a reward. He implies that. Do you see that? In fact, he mentions reward a lot in this chapter. Eternal rewards. If we heed this command showing love to our neighbors, we will be rewarded by our Father in the kingdom. But you have to seek for that reward, understanding that that it's a measure of obedience to the Father that receives the reward. If you operate, though, according to man-made rules, like those found in the Mishnah, or your own rules that you just make up, like I'm friends to these people, but not to these people, or I'll be a friend to you if you're a friend to me first, or I'll be a friend to you unless you burn me, or you burn me three times, that's it, we can't be friends anymore. If you have stupid little rules that let you do it the way you want to do it, you're not getting rewarded. You do it the way the Father does it, okay, well then there's opportunity for reward. For example, if you only show love to those who love you first, you're not operating according to these rules. And, and look how Jesus phrases that in verse 46. He asks rhetorically, what reward will you have? The answer then is none, because showing love to those who love you first is not worthy of a reward because that's just the way every human evil heart works. I mean, if you think you're doing anything novel... When you love those who love you in return, that's not new. Everyone does that. How are you showing Christ to anyone when you do that? Even the worst of Jewish society, Jesus said, a tax collector will love his own. He uses tax collector here, I think, for a very interesting reason. Tax collectors in Israel, you probably knew this, were despised. Not that it's changed much, really. But they were despised particularly in Israel because they were traitors. Uh, Romans used local subjects in any area that they conquered to work for them, to collect the taxes from that province. So in Judea, what the Romans hired, of course, was Jews. And the Jews then had the responsibility to collect taxes from fellow Jews and send the money to the enemy, to Rome. And so naturally, any Jew who would cooperate with the Romans in this way was considered a traitor by any other Jew. All right, but even worse than that, the way the Roman tax collection worked is they assigned to a tax collector a quota that they had to collect on a regular basis. And they had to turn that quota in. If they didn't turn their quota in to the Romans, they suffered a severe consequence. So they were heavily motivated to collect what they needed. So that made them like little you know, mafia men. They were just going around as an extortionist trying to force people to pay their taxes because they had this quota on their head. But it gets even worse. Because tax collectors weren't paid by the Romans. So how were they going to make their living? Well, they could keep anything they collected above the quota, which only incentivized them to try to get even more money, right? So tax collectors were just despised by the Jews. They were the worst enemy imaginable because it was a fellow Jew serving an enemy and hurting his brothers by how he collected these taxes. Okay, So what do you think that meant about the social life of your average tax collector. They had no friends. In fact, if they had any friends, who were their friends? Tax collectors. Which is why you see Matthew, by the way, celebrating with Jesus in a house full of tax collectors. That's his only friends. It makes sense, right? They were ostracized by the rest of Jewish society. Which is why I think Jesus said, even tax collectors are willing to show love, well, to other tax collectors, those who love them in return, right? It's a quid pro quo. You do things for me, I'll do things for you. That's hardly a standard of conduct worthy of reward, is it? 
It's entirely self-serving. It does nothing to glorify the Father. That, by the way, is exactly the standard that the Mishnah promoted. You should love fellow Jews and hate all the rest of them. It's not a godly standard. All right. There is no eternal reward for acting in this way. If you only show regard for your brothers, those who care for you already, you're just doing what people do naturally or what he says Gentiles would do. No, if you want to pass this test of righteousness and gain a reward in heaven, you have to do better than that. You have to do what the Father in heaven would do. You love those who don't deserve it, who don't show you any regard, who don't reciprocate, who throw it in your face, and you don't just do it once or twice. It doesn't matter what they do. You see the point? It doesn't matter what they do. It's not a reciprocal relationship. What is the relationship you're concerned about? Your relationship with the Father through Christ. That's the one you're concerned about. It doesn't really matter what the other person says or does. You love them any way you have to, consistently, without respect for how they return the love. Think about how that would actually work with relationships, by the way. I'm not, I'm not going to go off into psychology here for you, but I'm just curious. Wouldn't that change the way relationships worked if we worked that way? Wouldn't Christians actually look different instead of just looking like everybody else, but we have a regular appointment on Saturday nights? That's the kind of thing that makes us stand out to the world in a healthy way because it's what the world never does. That's what Christ is asking of us. When you do that way, when you're generous, kind, and considerate, and even pray for them, what Christ says is when you enter the kingdom, you'll see a reward for that. You'll see a reward for that. And I'm here to tell you That whatever you think you're sacrificing now, pride, generosity, time, whatever you think you're giving up in order to maintain this loving relationship with the world as Christ commands, whatever you're giving up, I assure you, when you get to heaven and you see what Christ is willing to reward you with for your obedience, you will not miss what you lost in order to gain what he will then provide. You will not be sitting there saying, well, if I'd known it was only going to be that, Jesus, I think I would have rather just been mean to everybody. It would have been a nicer arrangement. No. Notice that Jesus began this whole sermon in chapter 5, defining the qualities of a character that you find in a kingdom-bound individual. Those qualities of the nine Beatitudes that we looked at, they're made possible by spiritual rebirth. That is, you become a citizen of the kingdom when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. You're born again, we're told. You come to faith. God gives you a new spirit in the likeness of Christ. And in that new spirit, you have the potential now to think and act like Christ because you have a perfect spirit that he's now given you by faith. And by that new spirit, you begin to demonstrate the kingdom qualities that he defined in the Beatitudes. But we do not obtain the kingdom by mimicking those behaviors. That's what we learned earlier in this chapter. And by the same token, you do not receive the kingdom itself as a reward for good behavior. If you've ever read a passage in the New Testament that talks about reward, maybe this one or some other one, or maybe the word prize. Sometimes Paul will use the word prize. And if you read those things quickly and you run over it and you think, oh, that's talking about heaven. That's wrong. That would be a works-based gospel. If you think that the prize for a Christian is heaven or the reward for Christians is salvation, you're implying you had to earn it. The Bible never describes your salvation or heaven as a prize or as something that is a reward. It only uses one term for it. What is it? It's a gift. It's a gift. So what is this thing you're earning? A reward. What is this thing that you work to receive? A prize, Paul says, that he runs for. 
It's this, this concept in Scripture of an eternal reward, which we're going to build out in far greater detail as we move further into the gospel. But you need to separate this in your mind now so that we never get in the potential problem of you confusing what the Bible has to say on this. How do you get into heaven? By faith alone. By faith, now you are eligible to earn reward. How is that re- eligibility determined? Whether you serve Christ well or not. Right? It, it's a merit system. It's the same way we reward people at work or school. Only the judge here is perfect in their assessment. Perfect. And he sees everything. So he's going to be very accurate. Um, Jesus says you have the opportunity to earn eternal reward on this particular point by loving your enemy. So think of that. This is a really healthy thing, I think, in the life of every Christian, to understand this economy. Because there are going to be moments where you face that opportunity to show love to an enemy, and you know that's the moment. You see it coming. And there's a part of you that's preaching to you. I know what Steve told me. I know. The Bible says this is what I should do. And there's that other part of you that says, yeah, but uh, I don't want to do that. I really don't want to do that on this one. You know, maybe the next one, but not this guy. Right? All right. Fair enough. We all feel that way. Take that moment. Turn it around and say, what are you sacrificing in heaven? It's like the old Monty Hall, you know, let's make a deal TV show. It's dating me. But remember, you have the person who gets the thing right up front, but there's the door on the stage, and they're told, you can give this up for what's behind door number two. But I don't know what's behind door number two. That's the whole challenge. Well, let me tell you, if what's behind door number two in this case is what's going to be in heaven, I assure you, door number two is a lot better. So if you're thinking to yourself, it's not worth it, turn that around because it's worth it. It's worth it if you understand what's on the line. That reward, he says, will be based in part on whether you show love to neighbors, that is, to those around you, whether friend or foe. Let that be your encouragement to serve the Father in those moments and not to serve your flesh. Let's be honest. It can be difficult to show love to someone who you don't like. You want retribution. I've even had some people tell me, you know, when I'm being nice to someone I don't really like, I feel like a hypocrite. You ever felt that way? Well, as if showing them what you really think is better? Like, that's, that makes you a more honest person? I mean, I don't, does that work, by the way? Do you get a lot of friends that way? That, that's not, that doesn't even make sense. Remember the spirit of God's law. He didn't say, act like you love your neighbor. He said, love your neighbor. So I'm not asking you to be a hypocrite. I'm asking you to start loving the person. Because that's what Christ is asking of us. So God's intention is that you would first find love in your heart for them. And here's how you do that. The best way to find love in your heart for someone else is to remember how Christ showed you love before you loved him. Nothing softens your heart towards someone else faster than remembering that you've been forgiven for a whole lot yourself. Remember Jesus' words to Simon the Pharisee? He says this in Luke 7, 47. He says, For this reason I say to you, her sins, speaking about a prostitute in the room, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. The principle is, if you don't keep mindfulness about how much God has already forgiven you, you start to get haughty and judgmental. It's easy to judge another person, but only if you forget how much you have been saved from. In fact, that's one of my sayings. You cannot judge another person unless you feel superior. It's impossible. So on whatever the issue is that's causing the dissension, you will put yourself in your own mind in a position of superiority vis-a-vis that person. You will say, well, I've never done that. I don't have that problem. I haven't treated someone else like that. Therefore, I can look down my nose at you because you've done that problem. Okay, switch it around. What's your chief sin? 
I'll bet you're worse than they are on that one. Oh, but we're not talking about that one right now. We're talking about their problems so that I can judge them and feel better about myself. This is how we all live. This is what human nature does. So what I'm asking you to do is switch that around in your head and say, okay, they're irritating me about this thing right now. But what have I done in my background that I should be mindful of right now that Christ has forgiven me for? And if you could dredge up your life of sin and lay it in front of yourself and just look at it, you'd stop judging everyone in that moment. You'd just be sitting back going, oh my goodness, look what Christ has forgiven me for. I didn't realize I was quite that bad. It's kind of shocking when you put it in front of me that way. If you can do that, loving your neighbor is simple. Because you realize, you've got a long way to go before I forgive you for as much as what Christ has already forgiven me for. So, we're good. We're good. Now, if you're still struggling to love your neighbor at times, consider this. If you can't find it in your heart to show love to your neighbor for their sake, do it for your own sake. That is, for the reward. That's the way I like to lay this out in my mind. My first priority is to love them because that's the command. And because I was loved before I deserved it, I'm just going to do the same thing to them. But if I can't make that work on a given day, I revert to rule number two. I don't want to lose a reward for some idiot who's making me mad today. Did that come out out loud? (laughs) Said another way, I find a way to love them for my own sake. Now, Jesus summarizes everything we just covered, not only in that example, but in the other five, with the final verse of this chapter. He says, our goal, when you get down to the bottom of it all, is to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. That's your goal. Now, first, you have that goal because the standard for entrance into heaven, remember, is perfection. So the kingdom itself is on the line. You have to be perfect to get in. That perfection comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. And then by our faith in him, we are credited with his perfection. You've heard this, I know. So entrance into the kingdom is determined by being perfect. But secondly, then being made perfect in Christ by our faith, we are called to live as if we could be perfect, that is to say, in following the Father, striving to equal His standard. And that's why it's so important to understand the Spirit of God's Word. If you don't understand the Spirit, the real intent of what God puts in His Word, if you just gloss over that, obviously we're not Jewish, we're not in a Pharisaic culture, so we're not in danger of following the Mishnah, so that's not going to take us off track. But that doesn't mean you're not susceptible to missing the Spirit of God's Word. You may know, for example, that you obtain heaven by your faith alone and you're resting in Christ's righteousness. Well, great. That's step one. But if we turn this conversation now away from how to become righteous by faith and moved it into the direction of how do we walk in that faith, that is our sanctification, I bet we all get a little more nervous when the conversation moves in that direction, right? It's easy to say, oh, yeah, I got the gospel. I know, the, I know how to go to heaven. I'm fine. Honey, we can go to another church. He only talks about that. Well, that was chapter 5. You know what chapter 6 is all about? It's how to walk in that faith. How to live out your righteousness. For example, when Jesus says, love your neighbor, are you loving everyone? Or are you only loving the people you like? You see, the distinction between those two is the distinction between walking out your faith and just going to church. And, And there's a million examples like that. Between doing what Christ actually asked... And then just talking about it a lot. Or when Jesus says, turn the other cheek from one of our earlier examples. Do you forgive those who harm you? Or when he says, don't commit adultery. Are you actively fighting the urge to indulge your lustful thoughts? Are you actively stopping that? Or wishfully hoping it would go away? 
This is where the battles are in your life as a Christian. It's going to the specifics that are in the Word, understanding the intent, taking an inventory of your own life, and when you see a gap, working on it. It's not rocket science, rocket surgery, as somebody once said. It's just, it's just a process of intention. Now you see the issue of being perfect then is twofold. As Christians, we typically only think of that one side. We rest in the righteousness of Christ. We know we got our fire insurance, as they say. But we forget there's work to be done in the meantime. And that work is your sanctification. And what it leads to is reward. So there's something in it for all of us. Never mind the fact that we're glorifying Christ. But if you only pay attention to the letter of the law, that is, if you're like a Pharisee, you'll skip over some of this stuff because it's inconvenient. And you'll lose opportunity. So I want to summarize what we learned in chapter 5 as we now... We're not going to take much time more tonight. We're near the end. I want to go just into the first verse of 6 to show you what's coming. But as we leave 5, I thought it would be helpful to summarize with three quick statements what you learned in 5. Hopefully what you learned in 5. And if you're the kind to take notes, this might be noteworthy because it would be an easy way to remember the chapter. In general terms, this is what we learned. You know Christ to enter the kingdom. You have to know Christ to enter the kingdom. Secondly, you know Christ's word so that you may represent the kingdom. You have to know his word if you're going to represent the kingdom. And then finally, you obey Christ's word to obtain the kingdom. And what I mean by obtain there is to obtain the rewards of it. Those were areas that the Pharisees had terribly corrupted. And Jesus sets the record straight showing how does godliness work in those areas of life when we live out our righteousness. All right, that's where we're going next. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for an evening in which we can think about things that we don't think enough about. At least I don't think enough about, Father. Pleasing you, loving our enemies, praying for those who persecute us, considering the neighbor that crosses our path as an ordained opportunity for ministry, not just a, an inconvenience. Understanding, Father, that you care how we serve you so that you might be glorified by our life and that you then turn in grace and love and mercy and you offer reward as an incentive for us to seek you and to seek to please you. These are important things, Father. Perhaps too much for one night. Perhaps so much that we have to think more about it all week. And if so, Father, that's probably a good thing. But more than think about these things, Father, and Be fascinated by them. I pray, Father, we're thinking about how to change our lives to conform to what we've learned. I just pray, Father, that for each person listening tonight, that somewhere in their life, as they consider what they've heard, they're not overwhelmed with all that must happen in their life if they are to obey. They're not not discouraged by that. They're just focused on the one thing you have in mind. Each of us have plenty, Father, but you work with us patiently. And I pray, Lord, that we would each be thinking about the one thing that the main thing that you have asked of us and we need to do so that we can please you. And that you give us the heart and the strength and the courage to do it. First and foremost, because we love you, but also because we know, Father, you've encouraged us through reward. And we want to seek for what you tell us to seek for, knowing it will encourage us to do the right thing. Thank you, Father, that we can preach and hear these things and we can... Share them with one another. Thank you, Father, that you can give us a spirit, have given us a spirit that helps us understand and obey. And thank you, Father, that we can be a blessing to someone else as we obey. Bring us back in weeks to come. Continue to teach us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.